You're in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast, and whoever you are, wherever you are, we thank you for joining us today. We are live on Rumble, rumble.com slash amradpod. Real Steve Friend in the chair today to bring you a new and exciting episode. I'm going to be doing another history lesson. I, I covered down on William Penn and got quite a bit of good, positive response from the audience and wanted to, to go back down memory lane, go back into some American history, examine a specific person at a specific moment in time, and, and look at it as an example of leadership, because there is certainly a lack of leadership in the country today. And that is why we're going to call today's episode Lost in the Wilderness. But before we do that, we want to make sure that we acknowledge the show's sponsor, and that is True Earth. Folks, I had a conversation. I regularly talk with the owner of this, this company, this organization. Uh, he checked back with me after I first announced that they were the exclusive sponsor of the American Radicals podcast. Immediately, some of you went over there and made some purchases, took advantage of the promo code, which is unique to this audience. They've never done that before. AMRAD24. You can use that, get a 10% discount on all products site-wide. Uh, like I said before, and I will check down on this I was given a, a packet of some of the products to use. I didn't want to suggest anything to anyone without having tried it first myself. I am doing the, the turmeric trio, and it's, uh, it, it is combining of a turmeric and ginger and black turmeric. And studies are showing that this actually, those, those three ingredients really can combine to help with an inflammatory response and enhance your body's ability to heal. I can testify that my my soreness in, in my ankles and my hips and my knees that I have from running long distance has improved markedly since I began taking it. I've only been taking it for a few weeks. So make sure you go over there, check them out. It's a great company. It's an American company. They're very vertically integrated. They use their own fertilizer to grow their own products and process them all, all in the state of Georgia. It's an American company. It's a company that is focused on faith and family and health. So get healthy 2024. Use the American Radicals podcast promo code, which is AMRAD24. So back to the, the issue at hand. Uh, and, and that is today I want to talk about leadership and use an example from history. I am a, a Civil War enthusiast. I wouldn't say buff. Uh, I, I do quite a bit of reading about lots of different era, areas and eras of history, especially American history. But the Civil War really was what first piqued my interest in American history when I was studying in school. And that's why it's always been uh, had a special place in my heart. And uh, I want to talk about a specific battle and a specific individual today. And that is General Ulysses S. Grant at the Battle of the Wilderness. Uh, so we're not going to talk about his entire life. We're not going to talk about his presidency subsequent to the Civil War. We're going to talk about this specific battle and how it demonstrated uh, great uh, leadership on his part, uh, especially in the aftermath of that battle. And and to do that, we're going to we're going to use a lot of resources. We're going to use some videos and uh, and we're going to use some some literature. I'm going to lean back on the Project Gutenberg text that we had for William uh, from William Penn. And I thought that that was very appropriate. I know it's a little bit, uh, a little bit, let's say, elementary 
because it is actually for third, fourth grade students. But a lot of people did not make it through civics. So we're going to use that. I think it's good. It'll at least give us a launching off point and, uh, and we will go from there. So I'm going to pull up the text here and read a little bit of a background for Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, for those who don't know, he graduated from West Point. And uh, following that, he was sent to the Mexican border to engage in the Battle of Palo Alto. He was with the American military there. He actually did logistics, which doesn't sound sexy, but uh, having had that experience in the Mexican War, he brought that with him later on, subsequently to the Civil War, and was able to use it as a brigadier general in the Western part of the war before ultimately becoming the commander of the entire Union Army. And he really understood how to bring supplies from the back to the front of the line, which is just so important with any sort of military engagement. You have to feed your people. You have to make sure that they have their ammunition, they have their clothing, the, the temperatures and the weather is always changing. So that sort of understanding, he really cut his teeth on that in the Mexican War. Had uh, a few more a few more assignments within the military sort of decided it wasn't for him and went into private industry was a failure though as a as a clerk at a store as a farmer really kind of struggled outside of the military context and and that's when the reputation that he uh, was accused of having a, a, this this problem with alcohol that that sort of plagued him throughout his career and even into his presidency uh, he was having a hard hard time then and he he overcame overcame those demons to a certain extent and, and really, though, what launched him into success into the stratosphere was the unfortunate incidents that happened that brought the country to a civil war where where the North and the South, the, the Union and, and the Confederate States of America, there was a split. Unlike presidential hopeful Nikki Haley, I can say very confidently that slavery was the prevailing issue at hand that caused this giant chasm to exist between the states and plunged us into an armed conflict that ultimately resulted in the deaths of 600,000 Americans. Uh, I will read from this text, though, from the, the Project Gutenberg. In 1861, the Americans began to quarrel among themselves. Several of the states grew very bitter against each other and were so stubborn that the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, said he must have 75,000 men to help him stop such rebellion. Ulysses S. Grant came forward and said he would be one of the 75,000, and he enlisted again in the United States Army. He was asked to be a colonel of an Illinois regiment by the governor of the state. Then you may be sure that he had what he had learned at West Point and all subsequently at, in, during the Mexican War came into play, and he soon showed that he knew just how to train men into fine soldiers. He did so well that he was made into a brigadier general. You see, the war kept raging harder and harder it seemed as if it would never end. Grant was always at the front of his troops, watching everything the enemy did and planned, but he, gave, he grew sadder and sadder. He felt sure that there would be fighting until dear, brave Robert E. Lee, the Southern general, laid down his sword. The whole country was sad and anxious. They said, it is time there was a change. What in the world is Grant going to do? And he answered, quote, I am going to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. And no one doubted that he would keep his word. So obviously very elementary text. They didn't really get into the details of Grant assuming the command as the, the general in chief of all of the Union Army. Uh, that was a, a number of years. He, he fought it out on the Western front of, of the uh, 
of the Civil War there west of the Mississippi. It was a very different engagement in the West than it was in the East. He had a lot of success in the West, but it was sort of viewed as being almost a an undercard, almost the, the minor leagues of the Civil War because of the media. The media was very much in the East. They were covering what was going on between Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, which had multiple politically appointed generals. You had George McClelland, who was ultimately interested in becoming the president. Eventually, that was what his ambition was. It never came to fruition. Uh, he was subsequently replaced by, uh, I, I believe it was Fighting Joe Hooker, who, side note, or no, it was, it was Burnside, then Hooker. Uh, but uh, you had Joe Hooker, who allowed, uh, obviously, prostitutes to follow the army, which is how uh, he, that they subsequently got that name. Um, we had Ambrose Burnside, which is uh, where we get uh, the sideburns term from. That's really what, what most people know him for. And then finally, George Meade, who assumed the command. Uh, he was the last commander of the Army of the Potomac. He assumed shortly before the Battle of Gettysburg. The Union triumphed in that, but uh, he really was just kind of the same old story. And the same old story was for all of these generals prior to Grant assuming command was that they would engage with Lee, who was a brilliant tactician, and they would lose a battle or fight to some sort of a, a stalemate, a standstill, and they would regroup and then retreat and go back to Washington, D.C., back across the Rapidan River and basically let Robert E. Lee off the hook. And there was the, Abraham Lincoln, the president, was extremely frustrated. He could not find a general to take command and actually take the fight to Robert E. Lee, which is ultimately what was going to be required to bring the Confederate States of America into submission. Robert E. Lee was fighting the Civil War very much like George Washington fought the British during the Revolutionary War. It, he viewed it as a battle of attrition, a war of attrition, and he hoped because he was outmanned, he was outgunned, they did not have the resources in the South. Once they, especially when they lost control of the railroads, they, they lost control of the Mississippi River, they were gonna be unable to move resources around, move troops around where they needed them. He just had to hold out as long as he could, fight in almost a retreating fashion through trenches and, uh, as a result of that, extend the war as long as he could in the hopes that the the people of the Union would just lose an appetite for it, very much like the way that they did in, in Britain and pulled their troops back and let us have our country. That was sort of Robert E. Lee's overarching uh, aim for the way he was going to carry forward the Civil War. Uh, so in March of 1864, Abraham Lincoln named Ulysses Grant to be the general in chief of all of the Union armies, and he immediately began planning a major offensive towards the Confederate capital of Richmond. Uh, his it was this was called and it's been referred to as the Overland Campaign, and his his goal Grant's goal was to engage Robert E. Lee's army in a series of battles to defend the Southern capital because it was viewed as if you seized Richmond, which was the Confederate capital, that would ultimately bring them to their knees. The Confederates would not be able to keep up the fight, and and that would subsequently end the Civil War. Uh, so Lee, though, knew knowing that always was is in protection mode, trying to protect Richmond. Uh, so Grant knows this, knows he's going to have to engage him. And at the same time, he's sending his buddy, William Tecumseh Sherman, south through Georgia uh, and in his his march to the sea and hoping to sort of set up this pincer where, he, where Grant would attack from the north and Sherman would, after 
bringing the southern portions of the Confederate States of America into control would be able to attack from the south, and then they would have Lee essentially surrounded and they'd be able to, to end the war. Grant believed in continuous coordinated attacks in all theaters to completely destroy the Confederate army. And we were going to be done with this whole, we engaged in one major battle every single year, like McClellan, like Hooker, like Burnside, like Meade, and then we just pull back. And we hope that we inflict enough damage that it eventually comes to an end. Grant was not all about that. He wanted to put uh, continuous pressure on Lee because he, he didn't want to let him lick his wounds. He didn't want to let him move his resources around and be able to continually engage with him. Just going to overwhelm him knowing that the Union has more troops, more guns, more bullets, more resources, and can just use the weight of that to lean on the Confederate Army. So knowing that, and that was Grant's reputation that he had, uh, that he had developed when he was fighting on the western side and he'd become known as unconditional surrender grant using his initials uh u.s grant uh, but confederate general james longstreet who was a uh, a top general a top lieutenant to robert e lee once grant assumed command of the union army james longstreet made uh, the following remark quote we must make up our minds to get into lines of battle and stay there for that man will fight us every day and every hour until the end of the war. So the, the the South knew that, the Confederates knew that they were going to come up on a different sort of general here, and they had to gird their loins and be prepared for it. Uh, Lee, Robert E. Lee, who was uh, the Supreme Commander of the Confederate troops, he liked to be really mobile. He liked to use speed and deception uh, and because he knew he was outgunned. And he, he knew that if he faced the Union Army in a one-on-one, -on -one, basically mano-e-mano, hand-to-hand, he didn't have the numbers to actually to actually win that fight. So he had to be smart and clever, very much like a George Washington was during the Revolutionary War. Uh, so I'm going to show when I'm going to show this video here and setting this up. This is the Battle of the Wilderness. This was really at the very start of the Overland Campaign. This is when Grant and Lee meet for the first time, and uh, and, and uh, it is we'll, we'll get into some of the details of it. We'll show that to you, and this this will set it up for us. And here's a short video about the Battle of the Wilderness. Lee's sixty thousand men were waiting for Grant in the tangled thicket known as the Wilderness, in which they had trapped the same army under Joseph Hooker only a year before. Covered by a dense forest almost impenetrable by troops in line of battle. The undergrowth was so heavy that it was scarcely possible to see more than 100 yards in any direction. The movements of the enemy could not be observed until the lines were almost in collision. Advance units of the Union Army camped for the night on the old Chancellorsville battlefield, where winter rains had washed open the shallow graves. In glades they meet skull after skull where pine cones lay. The rusted gun, green shoes full of bones, the moldering coat and cuddled up skeleton, and scores of such. Some start as in dreams, and comrades lost bemoan. By the edge of these wilds Stonewall had charged, but the year and the man were gone. Thank you. 
It grew dark and we built a fire. The dead were all around us. Their eyeless skulls seemed to stare steadily at us. The trees swayed and sighed gently in the soft wind. Private Frank Wilkerson. All right, so that's sort of a, a general feeling of what uh, the what the Battle of the Wilderness, the the environment surrounding it. And I, I am hardly the historian. Look, I'm I'm reading you something from an elementary school here, uh, but my point in bringing you that this background and ultimately some of the details of this battle was to show. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant's leadership here. So this battle happens. It's a it's two days of fighting, May fifth, May sixth, sixth, eighteen sixty four. The Union Army brought about a hundred and two thousand troops to the battle, actively engaged in it. The Confederate brought about sixty one thousand. So obviously a huge uh, differential in size. Now during this battle, where uh, subsequently, you know, I think Grant made, made a remark that, uh, that that there was just nothing worse than this. He, he said that more desperate fighting has not been witnessed on this continent than that of the 5th and 6th of May. Uh, and there were 17,000 Union troops killed, 13,000 Confederate troops killed. So obviously by sheer numbers, obviously more Union troops were killed, but by a percentage of their armed forces, their, the Confederates lost more, so it's debatable who won the battle. And ultimately, I think it's generally the general consensus is that there really wasn't a winner here. It was just the first meeting of these two great generals for the first time. They were kind of it was expected to be sort of feeling each other out like two prize fighters in the early rounds of a of a battle to win the the heavyweight championship of the world. But instead, it just became haymakers at each other over two days. You're, you're talking about thirty thousand people who were killed in very thick woodlands uh, and, uh, and and just for a description of that um, generally massively was outnumbered and outgunned by the union forces the harsh terrain of the wilderness was preferable though to to generally to his goals to his aims because uh, as a fight in the dense woods would prevent Ulysses Grant from using his artillery effectively and provide cover for the smaller Confederate force but smoke from gunpowder blinded the soldiers and fires lit by exploding shells spread through the dry woods, making the wilderness an inferno for all the troops ensnared there. The unfavorable favorable terrain reduced the two-day battle to a series of bloody skirmishes in which 30,000 men on both sides were killed or wounded. During this battle, though, because uh, obviously the, the, the generals are not on the front lines typically at this point. They have a headquarters set up. Uh, and the Confederate army on the second day is able to take the flanks of both flanks of the Union army, which is, is a bad thing if you know anything about tactics and it's perceived to be, that's it. That's going to be the finishing move. The battle is going to be lost. We either have to withdraw or we're going to be completely shattered and, and lose, and we could lose our entire force. And when Lee does this, there is a, a general at, at headquarters who comes up to grant and tells him that and says and basically says we have to give up the fight we have to withdraw we're going to lose and grant's response to him is go back to your command and try to think of what we're going to do ourselves instead of what lee is going to do obviously seizing the initiative action beats reaction we need to be kinetic in our response we need to not sit here we need to not tuck tail and run like the other prior generals were inclined to do grant is going to take the fight to him. So like I said, the battle ends after May 6th. 
1864, May 7th, they're sort of, both armies are still there. They're trying to figure out if we're going to keep for this fight. And ultimately they both decide that we're just going to, we're going to pull back. We're not going to remain in active contact with each other. So the Union Army is marching towards Chancellorville Junction. And this, the army is marching eastward. And this is a big fork in the road. And this is where we're going to get into our discussion about leadership. And we are here on the American Radicals podcast. I am Steve Friend, FBI whistleblower. You can find me on social media at Real Steve Friend. You can follow this show on Rumble at uh, it's rumble.com slash amradpod. The show has obviously a Twitter account at amradpod. And my counterpart, Garrett O'Boyle, can be found at G-O-B actual you while you're here on rumble make sure you give us a subscribe follow the show give us a thumbs up i'm watching these shows one after another we seem to be picking up some steam here we want to keep that momentum going if you happen to listen to this episode subsequently on the podcast give us a five-star review subscribe to the show make sure that it gets downloaded to your device we're on itunes and spotify and iheart and podbean all across the board so you can get us in the audio format if you like that better so the Union Army, under the control of Ulysses S. Grant, following the Battle of the Wilderness, they are marching east, and they are approaching Chancellorville Junction. And there's a fork in the road. They can turn left, which will be north, back to across the Rapidan, back to Washington, D.C., or they can turn right, and they can go south, and they're going to go to the Spotsylvania Courthouse, where they know Robert E. Lee is waiting with his army. And every prior general to that point had, when put in a similar situation, turned back. So Grant sits aboard his his giant horse. He has this dark black horse that he, he called Cincinnati. Obviously, it's a reference to Cincinnatus, who was the great Roman general who was farming until he was called into service by the Roman Empire to become the Caesar and lead the empire. And then he gave up the power and went back to being a, a farmer. And that was, interestingly enough, who King George referred to George Washington as if he was willing to give up the presidency and not assume that as a dictator or as a king. And, and, and obviously, George Washington met that, uh, met, met that standard. So in honor of that, that's who uh, Ulysses S. Grant, that's what, who he named his horse after. And he so Grant marches to the front of the column with his headquarters. Obviously, the, the soldiers sort of recognize that that core of generals, they recognize Ulysses Grant, and uh, they're exhausted and they're they're marching. They they left their trenches and and uh, when they see though, Grant march to the front and turn to the right, turn to the south. We are marching to Spotsylvania Courthouse. We're going to continue to press Robert E. Lee's army. We're not going to pull back from this fight. We are not going to disengage. And at the time, Grant's aide-de-camp was a colonel, Horace Porter. He described this spontaneous reaction from the Union Army to... to Grant was a was a absolute stranger to them. They they knew his reputation from the West, but he was sort of perceived as being well. That works out there. That's the minor leagues. What you're doing here on the East, where they're fighting against Robert E. Lee, where he's perceived to be this King Kong type of figure. Nobody can beat him. Every single general tried has just been thrust aside. Can't can't pass the muster. Uh, your tactics are not going to work here. It was sort of the the general consensus amongst the elite. 
and then it permeated into the troops who were, had been uh, brought to brought to this engagement by other generals. So they were sort of dedicated to those guys, even though they weren't in command anymore. It was very much like a, say, like a college football coach who then gets a job in in professional football in the NFL, and they're saying, and then the other coaches and the media are saying, "Well, your your techniques, techniques, and your strategy and your game plans they might have worked in college, but they won't work here in the NFL." Uh, so they were skeptical of Ulysses Grant, but then upon seeing him turn and and doing the exact opposite of what every other failed general did. This is their reaction as described by Colonel Horace Porter. Notwithstanding the darkness of the night, the form of the commander was recognized, and word was passed rapidly along that the chief who had led them through the mazes of the wilderness was again moving forward with his horse's head turned toward Richmond. Troops know but little about what is going on in a large army except the occurrences which take place in their immediate vicinity, but the night ride of the general-in-chief told plainly the story of success and gave each man the understand, understanding that the cry was to be on to Richmond, which was on to Richmond was the, the, the call in the very early days of the Civil War because the Union was so overconfident in its ability to win quickly that they said, basically, we'll, we'll be in Richmond within a few weeks. So on to Richmond was the call. We're going to finish up what uh, Colonel Porter describes. Soldiers weary and sleepy after their long battle with stiffened limbs and smarting wounds now sprang to their feet, forgetful of their pains, rushed forward to the roadside, wild cheers echoed through the forest, and glad shouts of triumph rent the air. Men swung their hats, tossed up their arms, and pressed forward to within touch of their chief, clapping their hands and speaking to him with the familiarity of comrades. Pine knots and leaves were set on fire and lighted the scene with their weird flickering glare. The night march had become a triumph procession for the new commander. So Ulysses S. Grant wins over with this one act. And what is that act? He's being kinetic. He's filling the void of leadership, which we all sort of long for. We all want a leader to step up to the plate to take action. And if we don't have that, we will put our trust in the wrong people because people are sort of tribal. We're, we're pack animals. We need an alpha to lead us. That's, that's our innate uh, tendency. Because it's very rare to find a person who just wants to be standalone. They want to be a lone wolf. But even in that situation, they sort of view themselves as the alpha. And if they have a family, they're they're the alpha. I mean, we we do it within our own families. Mom and dad are are the alpha. The kids are the betas. And we have to lead. We have to demonstrate leadership. And and obviously, up to that point, for the first three years of this war, where the union had not had very much success, especially on the eastern front of it, they had had this. Uh, glaring absence of leadership. And uh, as a result of that, they put their faith and their trust in these political generals who were good at talking the talk, but were un not only unwilling, but unable to walk the walk. So for our purposes today, and we're going to look at, at leadership that is available and examples of both failed and successful leadership, uh, I will we'll set us up with a video, which is uh, from an older movie, and I know very much how the, the Rumble Chat likes my movie references. This is from The American President, which 
it's obviously leans to the left in the politics of it, but for for our purposes today, this is the discussion about leadership, and and uh, obviously the uh, there is a staffer who feels that the president, who's played by Michael Douglas, is failing as a leader here, and and the president sort of has to set him straight. So uh, let's give this a watch. So what does it say to you that in the past seven weeks, 59% of this country has begun to question your family values? The president doesn't answer to you, Lewis. Oh, yes, he does, AJ. I'm a citizen. This is my president. And in this country, it is not only permissible to question our leaders, it's our responsibility. But you already know that, don't you, Mr. President? Because you have a deeper love of this country than any man I've ever known. And I want to know what it says to you that in the past seven weeks, 59% of Americans have begun to question your patriotism. Look, if people want to listen to... They don't this have a choice. Bob Rumson is the only one doing the talking. People want leadership, Mr. President. In the absence of genuine leadership, they'll listen to anyone who steps up to the microphone. They want leadership. They're so thirsty for it, they'll crawl through the desert toward a mirage, and when they discover there's no water, they'll drink the sand. Lewis, we have had presidents who were beloved, who couldn't find a coherent sentence with two hands and a flashlight. People don't drink the sand because they're thirsty. They drink the sand because they don't know the difference. So knowing the difference, as the, as the president is, uh, is laying out here, often people don't know the difference. They will fall for sloganeering. They will fall for identity politics. And as a result of that, we're sort of uh, in this pickle now where we're led by people who are, are not genuinely good at leading uh, at, at a national level, at a state level, at a local level, even within our own families. As we have to identify what real leadership is. And I, I'm, I'm going to hopefully spell out some examples here and what I feel uh, is a glaring absence in our in our country and our culture here is this this uh, the reason that we are lost in the wilderness, which as an aside, I think it's very appropriate that the Battle of the Wilderness and it is the name of that battle that uh, that Grant first had with Lee uh, because up to that point the Union was lost in the wilderness. They didn't have leadership. So how are we going to find our way out of the wilderness here as a culture? Um, well, I can tell you one way we won't, and that is with sloganeering, the empty promises that we all too often get from our politicians uh, as they vie for our vote and, and our support. It's, it's uh, and I'm just going to give you a couple of recent examples in the last few years. Uh, this is the first one. This is the promise, and then uh, we will see if they were able to deliver on it. This is the current uh, minority Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, speaking at CPAC in 2013 about Obamacare. I want you to take a look at that uh, stack of paper behind me. It's the most powerful argument yet against Obamacare. What you're seeing is 20,000 pages of rules and regulations. Twenty thousand pages. And if you think that's bad, wait till they try to fix it. <laughs> On Wednesday we had a vote in the Senate to defund this monstrosity. Every single Republican voted to defund Obamacare.
And of course, every Democrat voted the other way. And that's what these Democrats voted for. This monument to liberalism right here behind me. They're going to have a lot of fun explaining that to their constituents, I can tell you that. This law is a disaster. Anybody who thinks we've moved beyond it is dead wrong. Obamacare should be repealed root and branch. Root and branch. That is what Mitch McConnell at the time was claiming that the Republicans were going to do. Obviously, all, all the Senate Republicans had voted to repeal Obamacare. They didn't have the majority. And even if they did, you know, that the, the president whose namesake is on the bill, or at least in the, the common parlance of the bill, wasn't, was going to veto it. So it was sort of a question of if you get the White House, if you get the majority in the Senate and the House, you actually have the institutional power to do this, this thing which you've been claiming is your goal, because Obamacare passed in 2010. So at that point, uh, the law, there was a few years gap before it was going to set up. They, they played these games through the budgetary process where they got funding for the bill, uh, for the law, for a few years before they actually implemented it so they could say that, oh, see, it's budget neutral, even though they had 10 years of funding for it and only seven years of expenditures. That was the game that they played to make it look like it wasn't costing the American taxpayers anything. And obviously that was that was fake and a lie. But Mitch McConnell here, stalwart, speaking at CPAC, Conservative Political Action uh, Convention, which is a, an annual annual right that, that they go and they all gather and they talk about these ideas. And he was claiming that they are going to repeal it root and branch. No remnants are going to be left of it. So let's flash forward, though. We had a presidential election in 2016 and obviously down ballot, House and Senate. And wouldn't you know it, the Republicans had the trifecta. They had the presidency the House and the Senate, and they could not seem to repeal Obamacare. So they started to push forward this new initiative. They called it skinny repeal. They were going to just repeal a little bit, sort of like, we'll do Obamacare a little bit better because we're, we're obviously better. And then it all culminated with a vote in the Senate. And uh, now a duly departed former presidential candidate, who had lost to Obama in 2008, but uh, retained his position in the Senate as a leader called the Maverick. John McCain uh, had the had the ability to vote uh, yes or no, and uh, we will see. Actually, has the AP brought it to us? What uh, what Senator McCain did? Mr. Peters. Mr. Portman. Mr. Reed. And here's the replay of it. This is John McCain walking Mr. Peters. up and giving the thumbs down, much to the surprise of his Republican counterparts and to the pleasure of Mr. Portman. Democrats. He voted thumbs down, no repeal of Obamacare. So empty promises. These were, this was Mitch McConnell. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't 
garner the vote of John McCain, who was a close ally of his, and they they used that promise to ascend to power. And then once they were there, they didn't actually do anything. They just talked the talk. But were unable, or in John McCain's situation, unwilling to walk the walk. And and you never know what sort of agreements were made backstage where they all kind of wanted it to stay in place, and they just figured, well, John McCain will be the one that that gets the numbers that the Democrats need to keep it in place. So a failure of leadership, empty promises, sloganeering, the repeal effort never came to pass, and we are still dealing with it. And uh, so we, we've criticized the Republicans. I think uh, we need to be equal opportunity criticizers here. So uh, we talked about Obamacare. That was the, the, the big bill that he wanted to bring, uh, that Barack Obama wanted to start, but his first action upon assuming office as the president was this giant stimulus package. And they always talked about it and they said $787 billion, which by today's standards, following your CARES Act, following the coronavirus madness and the response where we spent trillions of dollars, it seems like sort of cheap by today's standards, but $787 billion, they were going to stimulate the economy. It was going to be like a new, new deal. We're going to create government jobs. People dig a hole and fill it back in, but we'll pay them. Then they'll have money. Then they'll go out and spend it. And the economy will get a sugar rush. And I guess inflation be damned. But one of the promises, one of the slogans was shovel-ready jobs. And we will let the former President Obama talk to us about that. We've got shovel-ready projects all across the country to start helping states and local governments with shovel-ready projects. We are seeing shovels hit the ground. Shovels are breaking ground and cranes dot the sky. There are almost 100 shovel-ready transportation projects. Shovels will soon be moving earth and trucks will soon be pouring concrete. Shovel-ready was not as uh, <laughs> shovel-ready as we expected. We've got shovel no, shovel ready was not as shovel ready as they were, I don't think, expecting. I think as they were promising, uh, because those those jobs were just kind of invented out of thin air. You can't just say, go build a thing and then go build a thing and expect that that's going to do anything economically. And they didn't even have the jobs to, to fake the numbers, uh, which was a, a big hit to their administration and obviously resulted in them losing the House pretty dramatically in 2010, both that and the passage of Obamacare. But uh, nevertheless, failure of leadership, maybe. I mean, he, he made promises he was going to be like a new FDR, going to restart the economy following a great recession just as fdr had followed the or came in during the great depression i would contend that both men made it far worse and uh, we're still de dealing with the consequences certainly with barack obama he set the funding levels the spending levels so high and they've never come back down we've actually doubled and tripled down on those those numbers now and as a result of that we have 34 trillion dollars of federal debt when Obama came in, I think it was something like 10. So we've we've more than tripled it at this point. And I'll do one more final uh, final promises made but not delivered on uh, to essentially guarantee yourself a uh, power and put yourself in a leadership position, but uh, unable, unwilling to walk the walk. And this is George Herbert Walker Bush in the infamous, read my lips speech it's been a while since i'd seen this i haven't gone back and watched it before in preparing for the program today uh it, it just it was a different time man i'll tell you what but uh, we'll, we'll give this a watch and then and we'll move on to uh, to some other examples 
and I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. And I... My opponent... My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will and the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no. And they'll push and I'll say no. And they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. And then once he became president, obviously he raised taxes. He claimed, played the word game like many politicians do, that they weren't new taxes. They were just existing taxes that got raised. So uh, he kept his promise. And uh, that was hung around his neck in 1992. Uh, and as a result of that, George H.W. Bush was a one-term president, was not reelected. So those are failures of promises. What about failures of just by birthright, just because of the, the melanin level in your skin or the genitals that you have or the person that you want to have sex with, that ultimately qualifies you for leadership. And I, I pointed out a couple of Republican examples. Obviously, identity politics is rampant across both sides of the aisle. Uh, if you even believe that there are different sides of the aisle at this point, I think most of us sort of think it's a uniparty. Uh, I'll give uh, one example of our current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Joseph Robinette Biden. When he was running for president in 2020, he made a promise about his running mates and his, uh, his cabinet and who would be making up the leadership team once he was elected. And here he was in a CNN debate. I committed that if I'm elected president, have an opportunity to appoint someone to the courts, will be a, I'll appoint the first black woman to the courts. It's required that they have representation now. It's long overdue. Secondly, if I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. Just to be clear, you just committed here tonight that your running mate, if you get the nomination, will be a woman? Yes. Well, that was Joe Biden's promise. He actually did fulfill that promise. Uh, he, he obviously appointed Ketanji Jackson to the Supreme Court, and he chose Kamala Harris as his vice presidential running mate. But for our purposes in examining leadership, the their gender or their race make them necessarily leaders well we'll we'll let kamala uh put on her show and then you can be the best judge of that i think it's very important as you have heard from so many incredible leaders for us at every moment in time and certainly this one to see the moment in time in which we exist and are present. And to be able to contextualize it, to understand where we exist in the history and in the moment as it relates not only to the past, but the future. <laughs> Does anybody in the chat know what the current vice president was talking about? Uh, probably not. 
she was obviously not, she is not qualified to, to lead the country. She's not on day one. He should, uh, President Biden misstep and, and knock himself out of, of office as to assume that mantle. Kamala Harris should not be on that list. She's also somebody who's ascended through the political machine in California because it's so far to the left. She's never been challenged because she's obviously a woman and she has dark skin. And, and because of that, she's never been pushed on these issues and she's woefully not up to the task of any sort of leadership. And she keeps putting out that stupid passage of time thing because people for her whole career have obviously been telling her that it works or it makes sense and everything she says is magnanimous she is not a leader she is utterly incapable of saying stand behind me i will lead the way i will show you the way uh, kamala harris ain't it and she was elevated because of her immutable characteristics rather than the content of her character or her merit as a leader so those are some uh some examples we have failures of promises and sloganeering and obviously identity politics but they were successful to elevate all of those individuals to power to positions of leadership they became president or vice president because they made those promises or because they looked the way they did people were thirsty they were so thirsty they crawled through the desert and they drank the sand because it sounded good or it looked good and we all suffered as a result of that. So what is good leadership? Well, I contend that good leadership is kinetic in nature. It is acting. It is embracing the, the notion that action beats reaction. It's better to make the wrong decision than not to not decide at all. I like my way of doing things better than your way of not doing anything. Now that can have some positive impacts or some negative impact, you might make the wrong decision. But can't be argued is that it is leadership. You can lead a people to commit genocide, or you could lead a people to triumph over evil. So I have a couple examples, and it obviously, wherever your, your politics are, you might think one's good, one's bad, but you cannot refute that it is active, kinetic leadership, and, and that is a person filling that role there. Uh, and these are some relatively recent ones that maybe they maybe they slipped through. Some of them are higher profile than others, uh, but I've got four examples, and, uh, and and we will show video clips of those and then let you be the judge uh, of whether or not they are good or bad. But you cannot refute that they are in fact leadership. This first one was in Canada. This was a Polish gentleman who had immigrated to Canada. He was a pastor. And during the coronavirus madness, which was even worse in Canada, the police came to shut down his church during Easter. And uh, here is his response to them. Please get out. Get out of this property. Immediately get out. Okay. Get out of this property. Okay. Immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property. Immediately. I don't want to hear a word. Out. Out out of this property immediately until you come back with a warrant out 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 of this property immediately out immediately go out and don't come back don't, i don't want to talk to you not a word out of this out of this property immediately out i don't care what you have to say out! Out! 
Out of this property, you Nazis. Out. Out. Gestapo is not allowed here. Immediately, Gestapo is not allowed. Out. Do you understand English? Get out of this property. Go. So go. Go. And don't come back without the warrant. Out, Nazi. Out. Out. You understand? Nazis are not welcome here. Out. And don't come back without a warrant. Do not come back without a warrant. You understand that? You're not welcome here. Nazis are not welcome here. That guy is a complete and total stud. He had the police there. They had the health expert or some sort of administrator there who was bound and determined she was going to roll over him, and he wasn't having any of it. That's leadership. That's a pastor who said, you're getting out of my church, and I will not. I'm standing here. I'm setting this line, and you will not cross it. I will stand in the gap. I will stand in the breach. I am willing to be uncomfortable to create an environment here that is so hostile to what you're trying to do that you might have the force of law, the force of government. It cannot overcome my will. That's kinetic leadership. Give another example. Uh, this was a few months ago in the state of New Mexico, and this was the, the governor there who decided to take it upon herself that she was going to suspend the Second Amendment. This was her announcement. Other than a law enforcement officer or licensed security officer shall possess a firearm, either openly or concealed. Gun deaths are the leading cause of death for children 1 to 19 in New Mexico. Other than a... Well, you can question her, her politics. You can question the constitutionality of what she's doing. But that's leadership. That's saying... Do not quote the law to we who hold swords, like General Pompey in the Roman Empire. I'm just going to do it. I like my way of doing things better than your way of not doing anything. Now, fortunately for our Constitution and our Republic, uh, there was quite a bit of pushback. Even the Attorney General, Lieutenant General, there were the sheriff within, uh, within that county said he wasn't going to enforce it. Again, more leadership stepping up and, and pushing back. Uh, but... Again, the, the governor of New Mexico demonstrating leadership for good or for ill. It's up to your politics. Obviously, folks in the chat know mine. I am a Second Amendment absolutist. Uh, and, and while you're in the chat here, guys, on the American Radicals podcast, make sure you are giving us a thumbs up and following the show. If you listen to us subsequently on the podcast, subscribe, five-star reviews. We really appreciate it. Show's growing, expanding. As we're examining leadership today, and the title of the show is Lost in the Wilderness. We are trying to find our way out of the wilderness. We need a leader. We need someone to do it. A couple more examples here. Uh, we, we actually, this is a repeat. Uh, it's a brief one. This is about the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, where he's announcing that they're just going to go after January 6th defendants who were standing on the lawn outside the Capitol. Questionable the legality of this questionable, the motivations behind it. Is it an apolitical motivation? Obviously not. But again, being kinetic, I'm just going to do things. He's like the Joker from the dark Knight. I just do things. Here's Matthew Gray's announcement. And what happened inside of the building? 
an important note when it comes to our prosecutions about those who remained outside the building. We have used our prosecutorial discretion to primarily focus on those who entered the building or those who engaged in violent or corrupt conduct on Capitol grounds. But if a person knowingly entered the restricted area without authorization, they had already committed a federal crime. Make no mistake, thousands of people occupied an area that they were not authorized to be present in in the first place. Matthew Graves, just going to do things. And there will be people who follow him. That's leadership. Again, for good or for ill, it's taking action, not sitting on your hands. We have one more example that uh, we'll transition to. And this one is a little bit more positive note. Uh, I've given you two two kind of nasty ones. Uh, but this one's close to my heart, uh, having been a person who worked on innocent images, which are child pornography investigations, and having been a person who's spoken out at school boards about the permeating of material that is arguably pornographic to children uh, to corrupt their minds. Uh, this is a mayor in Ohio who actually, as a private citizen, attended the school board meeting that where they were going back and forth and discussing whether or not they were going to hand out this material. Now, the mayor has power at his fingertips. He's got certain phone numbers he can call. And this was his uh, his public address to the to the school board. Attention that your educators are distributing essentially what is child pornography in the classroom. I've spoken to a judge this evening. She's already confirmed that. So I'm going to give you a simple choice. You either choose to resign from this Board of Education or you will be charged. Thank you. Listen to that thunderous applause. That's leadership. That is filling the void where this one side was trying to do something and he was going to use the levers of power at his fingertips and not sit idly by and say, well, that's not really in my lane. No, I'm taking this on myself and I'm going to use my phone, use my pen, very much like Obama liked to, to brag about. And I will bring, I will hurt hurt you if you do not comply with what I, I am requiring, what I am requesting that you do. I'm giving you the option. It's it's up to you. But uh, he's stepped to the plate as a as a mayor, as an elected official, as a man, as a citizen of that community. And he's going to lead the way. And he's uh, had a unique position to do that and obviously didn't shrink from that challenge. So those are some examples of, of leadership being kinetic, being active in that. Uh, I have a quote here that I looked up, and uh, this is from John F. Kennedy president, 35th president of the United States, and is a quote about leadership. He said, quote, there are risks and costs to action, but they are far less than the long range risks of comfortable inaction. Back to the comfort, back to the real Steve friend push. We have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. As JFK said, obviously a mayor speaking to a school board, a pastor in Canada pushing back on the police that is not a comfortable situation, but those those are examples of someone willing to take that on themselves because they embraced leadership. Now, I'll give you one more example of a failure to take action and, and how 
actually it's 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 example of both it's an example of people some people taking action and some not taking action now recently there was the iowa caucuses where the republicans are nominating their candidate for president now, obviously there was some mitigating factors there's really bad weather it was very cold but there are somewhere around 700,000 registered Republicans in the state of Iowa. I lived there for about seven years, know the state pretty well. And about 110,000 showed up to vote, which would be about 15% of the Republican Party's stake in the state of Iowa. 15% of them actually showed up, actually took action to get off their duff, turn off the TV and show up to caucus, which is about an hour of your evening. That's it. If you follow the results, former President Trump won the Iowa caucus, won by a margin that was sizable. I think he won by 30, like 30 percentage points. And this is an overwhelming Carthaginian victory, as he would have you believe. Obviously, that's his, his campaign. But if you just look at the numbers, just do a brief examination of how few people actually showed up. And there, if if Donald Trump obviously uses this as an opportunity to springboard his candidacy and nomination and ultimate election to the presidency, if he can draw that back to the state of Iowa and winning the caucus in such a convincing fashion, 7% of the Republicans in the state of Iowa voted for Donald Trump to be caucus for Donald Trump to be the nominee for the Republican Party. That small amount of people were able, about 7,500 people were active, were willing to be a little bit uncomfortable because they wanted to do what they thought was right. They were comfortable being uncomfortable, whether or not they were cold or inconvenienced. That is how little it takes. That is how big the void is of real leadership in this country. That is the impact you can have, which is also a great opportunity. So few people are willing to do it, to step up, be it to run for president or go to your school board meeting or even go vote, that you can have a dramatic impact if you're willing to embrace a little bit of leadership qualities. I want to close it out here on the American Radicals podcast with uh, a final clip about what is good leadership and then uh, a short personal anecdote. Uh, so first, the clip. This is from the, from the film, We Were Soldiers. This is uh, a biopic or a movie about the, the cavalry the, uh, going into to Vietnam. And, and Mel Gibson is playing Colonel Hal Moore and, and delivering a speech to his troops before they go into combat. And I would argue that this speech here demonstrates really great leadership. So we'll give that a play. 7th Cavalry, we got a captain from the Ukraine, another from Puerto Rico. We've got Japanese, Chinese, Blacks, Hispanics, Cherokee Indians, Jews and Gentiles, all Americans. Now here in the States, some men in this unit may experience discrimination because of race or creed. But for you and me now, all that is gone. We're moving into the valley of the shadow of death, where you will watch the back of the man next to you as he will watch yours. 
And you won't care what color he is or by what name he calls God. They say we're leaving home. We're going to what home was always supposed to be. So let us understand the situation. We are going into battle against a tough and determined enemy. I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this, I swear, before you and before Almighty God, that when we go into battle, I will be the first to set foot on the field, and I will be the last to step off, and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So help me God. Now, I think that speech, it's an incredible speech. It's, it's really uh, well done, especially by Mel Gibson. You have a, a great figure that he was he was playing in Hal Moore, and Mel Gibson, obviously, an incredible actor. And it's, it, that speech is really relevant to the talk that we've had today on the AMRAD pod on Rumble, rumble.com slash pod, because in it, he points out that your religion, your race, your creed, nothing matters. That isn't important. Can you do the job? And then he he makes a promise, it, but it's a promise that he intends to keep, he, and he says what he can't do. And he is willing to talk the talk and walk the walk, putting himself in harm's way. I will be the first there. I will lead you on that field, and I will make sure that you all come home. That is my pledge to you. And if you watch the movie or you've, you've read about it, uh, obviously he he followed through on that on that promise in that battle, which was a, a testament to true leadership on behalf of Hal Moore, Colonel with the United States Army 7th Cavalry Division. Now, to, to sort of put the, the lid on this one today, I want to leave you here with uh, another definition of leadership. And I held in my hand a challenge coin, and it is the leadership test. This was given to me when I first emerged as a whistleblower. This was a former, this is a retired special agent with the FBI, said that he carried this with him when he worked. And he worked for 29 years, and he wanted me to have it. And if you read it, it says, leadership test. Am I doing the right thing? at the right time, in the right way, and for the right reason. And I think that pretty much sums up what real leadership is. It certainly sums up what being a suspendable is, which is what my friends and I like to call ourselves and what I hope uh, a lot of you consider yourselves in the chat today. That was our history lesson on the American Radicals podcast. I thank you very much for your time today, and we will see you next time. God bless you all. been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the american radicals podcast follow us on rumble.com slash am rad pod <laughs>